0: Hi, I'm your host, Connor Byrne, and welcome to this episode of That's What I Call Marketing, the podcast where you will hear from the leading lights in the marketing world and listen to their unique stories. One of the joys of the past few years, and there really haven't been that many, but it's been the ability to reconnect with people that you haven't seen or spoken to in a while. And today, I get to catch up with Doug Cameron, who's talking to me from his home in Brooklyn. Doug is the founder of the agency DCX, which was one of 12 agencies named in Adweek's agency 3.0 list. Doug has worked with amazing clients like Smartwater, Ben & Jerry's, and Svedka Vodka. In 2012, Doug co-authored the book, Cultural Strategy, using innovative ideologies to build breakthrough brands with the equally brilliant Doug Holt. Today, we cover so much, from meeting David Ogilvy in a bed of flowers on his castle lawn, that's David Ogilvie's Castle Lawn, how to start to think about a cultural strategy and the wonderful Pay Less Shoes example that brings it all to life. Doug, thanks a million for joining me on That's What I Call Marketing. Uh, great to have you with me. Great, and great to uh, be interviewed by you, Connor. Well, listen, uh, I, I know a bit about your your background, but I'd love to hear from you about how you, how you got into advertising. So I guess after
1: college, I decided to travel as a street musician, um, at the time, my girlfriend was living over in France, and I thought, okay, how do I you know, get over there um, right after college and decided to <laughs> pick up the bagpipes and start playing Bag on Street Pikes. Corner? Okay. Yeah, so I'm actually from a Scottish-Canadian family. My grandfather used to play, great-grandfather used to play, um, and um, I had seen someone playing outdoors at, at, at some point. Um, Notice that um, a fair bit of money um, <laughs> kind of uh, went into uh, the, the bagpipers uh, money box, um, just getting changed from people. And I decided hmm, that might be a good way for me to travel. And so took off for Paris, um, started playing in the Gerdin de Luxembourg, was promptly kicked out of that um, <laughs> and ended up playing outside of the apartment of the one other bagpiper in Paris. <laughs> I didn't realize that it existed at the time. And that was a, a gentleman named Ewan McIntosh. And I guess we decided to travel together okay. um, and then just kept going. You know, we skied in our kilts. We went to beach areas in uh, France. We, uh, you know, we'd be bored, you know, head down to Morocco, you know, that, that sort of thing. Um, and I guess at some point I was in Switzerland and picked up a book. It was Ogilvy on advertising. Um, <clears throat> started reading it, noticed that this David Ogilvy character lived in a castle in France and thought, hmm, why don't we write him and see if we can drop by and say Hello. Um, and so he said, sure, come on over. Um, no way. and this was when he was years old. Uh, yeah. And we, I remember uh, showed up on his castle lawn. He had this uh, massive courtyard in the middle of France, probably didn't receive a lot of visitors. Um, and he was on a cell phone, which were pretty new at the time. This was 1997 or 1990, yeah, 1997. Um, and uh, basically chased us off of his lawn. <laughs> and I guess uh, when you play the bagpipes, um, There are a couple negative responses that you occasionally get. Um, One of them is from what we'll call uh, Celtic geeks. So people who know a little bit more than they should uh, um, about the, the, uh, the, the, you know, bagpiping and, you know, kind of Scottish, uh, you know, also probably applies to Ireland as well, too, kind of details. And uh, they would ask me to play, like, can you play p music? And I would say no, because it's this ancient medieval form of bagpiping that no one would ever enjoy as atonal um but then you get a bit of an earful for like oh you're not a real piper. um the other one i guess it happened a few times i had a tie that looked like a regimental tie and then that had a negative response from someone in the governor general's foot guards who was like hey are you uh, you know entitled to wear that tie you're not if you're not in the governor general's foot guards and so i guess within the uh course of maybe one minute um on david Ogilvy's lawn he was like can't you see i'm busy right now what is this about what is this you know and uh, he uh, tried to chase us off of his lawn. Then his wife, who is this uh, you know, wonderful woman, came, came running after us and said, no, 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 David, you actually said that uh, you would uh, speak to these two, two boys. Um, and when he looked at us, he turned, he started evaluating and he said, um, like, why are you wearing that tie? Is that, <laughs> and I guess he'd gone to uh, Fettes College and must have some military ties in, uh, in Scotland. And you know, said, if you haven't been to Fettes College, you're not yeah. entitled to wear that. <laughs> and then he said, like, you play Pibra. You call yourselves Pipers? And then at that point, I decided, hmm, why don't I just play a bunch of random notes, which I did. It was just like, mm-hmm. and then he kind of calmed down for a second. He was like, Pee eh? uh, You're true Pipers. <laughs> and then at that point, he walked over into a bed of daffodils, lay on his side. Oh, wow. um, and <laughs> and uh, then my friend, um, Ewan, started getting you know, subtly a number of photographs of the two of us and those had ended up um, when I was applying for jobs on my envelopes that I sent out where it said Doug Cameron and David Ogilvy. you know one of these two is I was following the Ogilvy rules because that was all I knew uh, you know applying for a job at Saatchi and Saatchi you know etc and open yeah. the envelope to find out which one it always had a call to action um, and you know like it was like photograph always use a caption you know properly underneath it so followed that and that led to my first job at Cliff Freeman and Partners so I guess a lot of uh, the larger agencies at the time probably screened it out, including Ogilvy, where you know they would just arrive in the mail room. Someone would strip it of the, the mail and pass it on, or the envelope. Um, but Cliff, um, it ended up on his desk. Um, Cliff is the guy who did the Wendy's Where's the beef spots. Oh, a oh okay. Tiny agency. <laughs> yeah, t- tiny agency at the time. Um, and I think he just thought, this is really bizarre. Let me bring it into the, um, you know, the, the head of planning and see if she'll hire him. I was, I was looking for a job as a strategist, a strategy intern. Um, and yeah, they ended up, uh, hiring me. And so <laughs> that's how I got my, got my first job. And, and that was at a time when Cliff Freeman was, um, went from, he, uh, did the, where's the beef ads and started his own, around found uh, little Caesars account that started winning all these kind of top awards uh, globally. Um, and, um, it was right at a time that, you know, it was still a really small agency, um, but they won a tiny account, um, called Fox Sports at the time. Um, and so... Right. I was, you know, the first assignment was to launch NHL hockey. And, they, you know, they said like, hey, you're and you're from Canada, you know, you're, you know, it all, intern. you know,
0: all about hockey. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> Sitting around doing nothing. Why don't you come onto this account and tell us about what's so great about coffee, coffee or hockey. And, and this had nothing to do with me, but that uh, campaign ended up winning the, you know, gold at Ken that year and helped, you know, really kind of uh, uh, solidify the agency's reputation. And then that ended up uh, kind of the agency suddenly started growing uh you know over the next let's say yeah, five six years and that was really a fun a fun kind of
0: run so <laughs> and when was um, this the, what like what year would that been when you started with them
1: so 1997 i okay. guess it was yeah. at the time um and it was the client had come over from espn where they just did that kind of great um this is sports center
0: work yes yeah
1: I'll say that on that account, you know, I did nothing basically, but got to sit and watch, and you know, got to talk about why hockey was great, and maybe that was a bit of the inspiration. But you know, if you, uh, you know, like I I guess what I'd I'd seen in a lot of ads before that, you know, growing up um, was the, um, you know, if you wanted to boast about hockey, you talk about all of the great things, uh, you know, about hockey. What what happened at Cliff Freeman was they'd not just talk about, you know, here's what you are and what's so great about hockey, but here's what you're not. (laughs) And, um, uh, that's where suddenly you've got a lot more freedom to be really creative and talking about what you're not. And that's what's sort of differentiating, I'd say a lot of the Cliff Freeman ads from other ads. So even going back to the, where's the beef ad, um, it's like, we've got a lot of beef in our burger. That's not that interesting, but you would start dramatizing. Here's what the other companies might do. They have these massive fluffy buns and then you've got someone saying, where's the beef? And then it becomes yes, much more yeah. yeah. And uh, he had also, I think, his second most famous one was for this Russian fashion show where it was all about choice—you know, burgers at Wendy's—and um, then um, what's the opposite of choice? And he had okay, here's a Russian fashion show where you know, there's Russian daywear, Russian evening wear, Russian swimwear, um, but it was all kind of the same woman wearing this uh, but... peasant babushka attire. It's it's pretty dumbass in, in retrospect, but um, it was kind of this nice formula that you would see. Okay, we can boast about ourselves. It's probably not going to be that interesting, but once you take the what we're not to the extreme. And really it's the, you know, there's almost a cultural protagonist here and yes. a you know antagonist and let's take the antagonist that starts becoming really interesting. So, so when it's talk sports, it was actually, what are we not? Um, we're not nonviolent sports. And so, you know, to, we're not bowling, you know, we're not billiards, we're not golf. And uh, ended up with this campaign um, around the idea of the, you know, this two women bowling, one gives the other a big body check and it says, you know, hockey or bullying would be better if it were hockey um, and a, a series of ads on that, you know, golf would be better if it were hockey um, and, you know, started understanding, let's say the power um, of, you know, any brief you're given um, start with that <laughs> client platform, you know, what they want to say, you know, work with them to kind of make sure it's the, the, the right thing to say, but, really kind of use your creativity in dramatizing the let's call it the antagonist side of it the you know the here's what you know we you know that what we're not here's the antithesis um to us and then you can really really have a lot of fun
0: oh it's interesting you talk about the brief there like how important are things like the brief to you because i want to continue because there's only like really i don't know how far through you're not we're not through your career yet but i want to just ask you as you touch on the brief What what your views are on on briefs
1: well, for me the, that was another really good lesson because I think you know the, the client brief will be a really good starting point. What would then happen would be this extensive argument client uh, process with the client. Um, again, this I was observing in large part the uh, you know the, one of the creatives um, just arguing with the client to the point that they would end up quite often in these fox sports and you know the, the minor screaming matches and things like that <laughs> just to kind of get to it would be a creative process to get to a really strong you know here's what hockey is, let's say. And so we'd, there'd be a starting point, but it would evolve pretty quickly. And then you know, I started calling it like the iterative brief. Yes. So yeah, it's great. Start with one, and that's really helpful to get going. But we're not going to lock it, you know, the, and just that's the end all, judging all work, because we might get to a better one as we go. And then okay, let's lock that for a bit, and, and you know, get get into that. But that's you know, since then, that's been my belief on that as well too. So. All of those campaigns, they feel like they're just very like, here's the simplest thing we want to do in the world. It's just here's, you know, what's so great about hockey. Um, we're not doing much more, but, you know, it took a while to get to that point in each one. And it was kind of a creative process. And then you'd, you'd lock it and you've got your kind of campaign platform where hockey is better than X sport. And there was another one actually that won me, um, I guess, the Grand Prix for film Can um, This was about two years after that. Um, and we had done a very lengthy strategy project <laughs> to launch Fox Sports Net. Um, and that's like Sky Sports, I guess, over in the, yeah. but it, start, uh, it was a regional um, sports brand. And I guess the idea was like, okay, maybe we can, you know, with cable, you know, now entering, we can uh, go to all the local markets. And, uh, the, you know, for everything we did in the, let's call it the segmentation project, the strategy, you know, had a big kind of cultural strategy, you know, involved in it. But the, uh, you know, there was a line that the creatives came up with, which was the, you know, sports from the only region you care about yours, (laughs) That suddenly that started, okay, we've got this strategy, but here's how to encapsulate it. Let's lean into that. And suddenly that becomes for everything. So you'd show all these kind of sports where here is, you know, this bizarre, you know, like face slapping sport in, you know, Russia, or here's a tree falling over in China, or here's someone, you know, diving off of a cliff and it was actually shot in South Africa. Um, But where... And Yeah, that, that taught me a number of lessons. But, and then you know, like no, here's sports from the only region. You care about yours, and you know it's like Yankees, Jets, so you know whatever region yeah. you're in. And we kind of talk about about that. But it became this pretty um pretty funny and pretty strong um, platform that yeah you know, launched that brand that is still a kind of a, taken off. So going strong strong today, um, let's say. But it did. It was pretty instructive, and part of that was also just understanding that to a large extent, a lot of the action was on the creative side and a lot of the strategic decisions were done by creatives. Um, I was always involved as a strategist and, you know, we could help, but ultimately a lot of the, you know, ideas that were, uh, you know, the the industry would describe as creative um, were in fact very strategic. Uh, And so that was another lesson that, you know, I still have that as a belief that it's very hard to you know, we, we love to think about it like the strategy comes here, the creative comes, but it's the, you know, in, in my experience, it, it it only really works well when you can kind of work iteratively across the, the two. So.
0: Yeah, it's not as simple as kind of client gives brief, you know, brief goes into agency strategy teamwork and, you know, like it just, and you do see that still, I think.
1: Can I tell a story, which I feel like I'm probably allowed to tell now. It's uh, been about 15 years or so now. This is on Ben and Jerry's. Oh, Yeah. So this was uh, Ben and Jerry's. Then was run by Unilever, um, or you know had been acquired by Unilever, and um, you know that for for years had been you know all about its kind of social mission. You know, from the founders, um, Unilever had acquired um, Ben and Jerry's, and uh, at the time had a policy saying we don't get involved in anything political. <laughs> we're a Dutch company; we've always remained neutral on every single issue, and that's just company wide. That's the the policy, and so. You know, we started seeing that as problematic because Ben & Jerry's had basically become famous through a lot of its kind of political theater and antics. And, you know, here's Peace Pops and here's Reinforced French, yeah. et cetera. And, you know, you kind of look at the Unilever acquisition, the, uh, you know, all these metrics kind of tapered off right at the moment around the, you know, j- just after the, the acquisition. Um, where the, you know, the growth, you know, slowed, to the you know, price points, you know, kind of started out, you know, the, the, coming down, et cetera. And so we were just like, look, you had this really iconic brand. It was built in that way. And, you know, like we get this policy for almost any other brand, but it'll be very difficult for this one. And so really kind of started working to be able to kind of get them to do that again, to advance a, a, a kind of a and take this ideological position, countercultural yeah. um, kind of a position we've done for a long time. Now, we were then given the feedback, like, no, it's Unilever. We want to talk about products. We've got, you know, all these, you know, uh, these specific <laughs> way of things that we want to, you know, to start, uh, want to do that rooted in, in product. And so we started thinking, well, food politics might be interesting. And this was back in 2002, 2003, um, before the whole food movement had taken off here, really. Yeah. But you started seeing these signs of, you know, here's Whole Foods, stock was shooting up. Um, uh, the, you know, People were beginning to kind of look at, okay, what are some interesting locally sourced? To, and we're just like, okay, Ben & Jerry's has actually done a lot to work with local creameries, you know, is really kind of interesting there, does have a superior product because of that. Um, let's talk about that. And I still remember we, you know, kind of pitched it up to the person running the ice cream division at Unilever and um, the response when we presented the whole, you know, here's a whole well thought through strategy, here's, you know, the testing, here's all the, you know, the, the, you know, how it's going to work, you know, all these different levels. And, you know, it was just, you know, like, Hey, you are a very persuasive um, young group of people but you're never going to convince me that, uh, that Americans are going to give a fuck. I think that was the word uh, where their food comes from. (laughs) And this was actually a a British gentleman. And so Mm -hmm. at the time you you picture everyone's kind of crestfallen. But if you do, if you don't have the um, details there where we're looking at the whole food movement, we're looking at the, you know, Ben and Jerry's consumers, we're interviewing them where the trouble is if you don't have enough time to take, you know, that someone doesn't have the context you know, in there, it's kind of, it doesn't make sense. So, that's to me where it's just really kind of a factor of the amount of time that you actually get to spend and walk through with the the senior person and then their views can change very quickly if they don't and again it's probably for very good reasons that they're paying attention to something completely different you know yeah. at the at the time and the but it's the it becomes very difficult and so to me that's the you know I've just been at a number of large corporations where you know it's like look the you know here's the the CEO ultimately makes the decision 15 minutes to present you know the strategy yeah. to you know to each across each brand, you know, one after after another. And it makes it very difficult that, you know, say you have this long length, people are going to lose patience really quickly. Um, and again, it's, I think, because that person has a lot of other, you know, worried about Wall Street, you know, I don't know, worried about all sorts yeah, of-
0: shareholders <laughs> yeah. um, and
1: shareholders. Yeah. And, you know, it might be just the sad part is you're not, you know, the most important people in this. And okay, and that's where it becomes really important. You know, whenever we're in that situation, we always want to be able to pivot very quickly. Like, look, let's push for what we think is best. But let's also, if you know, here are the parameters that's defined. Let's do the best thing we possibly can within Mm -hmm. that. And so we'll always kind of have the, you know, try it their way first. um, Then try to show it that your way is right. I think that might've been a Birnbach uh, is to me really important to just kind of like, look, let's nail exactly what they want now. Let's try to like, look, we've got that. We've done that. Here's our rationale for, uh, you know,
0: number two. Building on it. Yeah. 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 And, And so where did that take you from, um, Obviously you didn't, you didn't stay there. You're not still there. So where did, where did that take you in your kind of yeah, your journey? So, so probably around
1: 2002, 2003, uh, you know, like, like like Cliff Freeman had done really, really well. I think probably won more awards and uh, you know, like that, um, run than any agency of the world. And it was just a tiny agency. It was kind of like year after year after year. Um, and the at the end of that run, I guess we had been there for about six years, seven years, just started talking to a number of people about starting my own agency. Um, and, you know, was in those days quite impatient, I guess. <laughs> was a, a you, know, the, the, you know, I'd started off as an intern, still, I think, stayed intern for about a year at Cliff Freeman and was, you know, getting paid probably about a, a you know, like a quarter of what any of my friends were, you know, it felt like at, at the time. And, um, you know, I remember... I actually spent a term over at Oxford and read a book that, you know, had here's careers for Oxford um, graduates and, you know, they had accounting and investment banking and all these different professions. And then there was one on advertising and that was really influential, you know, at some point I was like, this seems really interesting. And I remember the uh, person who wrote it said like, look, what you need to do is work for another agency. And then eventually you want to kind of uh, become friends with their largest client and then start your own (laughs) Uh, and then they'll come over. And so, you know, I always had that in the back of my mind. That's, you know, an interesting thing to do. Um, you know, we, we, um, it was actually, uh, I guess, Ben and Jerry's. It certainly wasn't a large client; it was a tiny client at, at the time. Uh, but then started our own agency, and they came over as our um, as a founding client. Um, and in those days, we also wanted to. We kind of saw, like, look, the, you know, the marketing is changing pretty quickly. That was when, you know, like the Cliff Friedman was kind of the you know, the, the, one of the best agencies in the world at like 30 second television ads, you know, and that okay. uh, was kind of what made it famous. And at the time, you know, we were working on Ben and Jerry seeing like, look, the television ads feel wrong for them by and large. And, you know, they branded through, you know, at the time we're like, we're not sure what, but, you know, it's through a lot of the antics, of the founders and these kind of yeah. stunts and culture and, you know, how are they doing? We started calling it culture hacking later.
0: Yes. Um, yeah. But
1: thought, like, what happens if we take what they're doing and kind of reverse an engineer, uh, engineering agency around that and I guess there was a point when we were, I remember pitching campaigns to Unilever and realizing, uh, you know, that, wait a second, the internal team is greatly outflanking us here where, you know, they are doing these, you know, you'd have the big ad campaign. Um, and uh, then you would also have the, do these little stunts. Like one was, you know, like in the early days, it was, you know, the uh, rainforest started becoming an issue. There's a lot of slashing yeah. and burning rainforest. They create rainforest crunch. Yes, <laughs> and yeah, it, yeah. Yeah, sustainably harvests nuts from the rainforest. And that would get a ton of press. You know, the like Cold War is a big issue in America. Um, the, you know, Reagan kind of uh the posturing, you know, versus Gorbachev at the time, they launched peace pops and start, you know, saying, look, we're gonna give part of the money um toward these programs that you know encourage peace. Um and kept doing those. Even you know after we joined, the the team had come up with this great one for um, to protest drilling up in Alaska, <laughs> um, and that was the, the you know the oil companies were kind of getting you know permission to drill in uh, the, you know, various areas, and they they called it a uh, baked Alaska, which is the name over here for a dessert. Yeah. Uh, lit a, the world's largest baked Alaska on fire in uh, Washington in front of the, uh, the you know the the, the Congress. Uh, and, you know, they would always be doing these kind of uh, interesting things like that, that they would just kind of come up with on their own and do really well. Um, and that's where we were like, look, we need to up our game. This is really interesting. They're getting yeah. a ton of PR, a ton of, you know, hacking into the culture. Um, what if we were, you know, we've done, you know, like Ken winning ads, <laughs> um, you know, w- w- what's next? Why don't we yes. uh, you know, figure out this more modern marketing approach? And so really founded the whole agency around that. Um, and then when we had them as our first client, it just kind of became this fun experimental ground. But um, that, so that was, that was agency number, you know, the first agency you started called Amalgamated. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it did a lot of pretty interesting things there launched, you know, it's called Spanker Vodka, you know, back in the day, took that, you know, got that to outpace Absolute Vodka, the, the, uh, you know, but, but a lot of pretty interesting, uh, you know, had this tiny health insurance, um, you know, the NGO, there was about a million dollars, you know reposition them as the freelance union that took them about hundred million, you know, and just, you know, is really just kind of thinking creatively about these, uh, you know, how do we get these brands into the culture? Um, and let's do it non-traditionally, you know, how you'd refer to it at the time. Um, but, you know, what we, you know, talk about it today is kind of like almost culture hacking, you know, where let's look yeah. at all the, what's going on in culture. Let's put the brand in play um, into culture. Um, doing a really highly kind of creative way. And then, uh, you know, suddenly it's like they get all these benefits of, you know, almost for free, you know, the brand starts, uh, starts growing once you kind of, you know, so freelancers union is a great example. Suddenly all these freelancers were, you know, know, wait a second, there's a union for freelancers. That doesn't make sense, but I want to find out, let me see, let me join. And then six months later, you could sell, you know, health insurance to them. Yeah. Uh, but it kind of created this platform that just lets them grow and grow and grow through word of mouth and through articles and through here's this interesting uh, uh, the group they were called like working today when they came to us we're just like no one's going to remember that name no one wants to hear from an insurance company trying to sell them, you know benefits why don't we create this interesting cultural phenomenon and, and so re- really it kind of turned into that um, eventually we, you know, grew. That agency sold it um, really when we realized we weren't very good at managing it <laughs> um, that we were like, oh, we love working on these things, but you know, once it hit about thirty five you know forty people suddenly it's okay. We're, this is the different part thing. that we're not good at. You know, yeah. You, know, yeah, 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 <laughs> you yeah. need to step back from all that so, sort of stuff. You need to be focused on, uh, you know, I don't know, schedules, timelines, you know, organizing other people and, you know, kind of forcing them to do work and we're just like, that's not our, and trying to do it all very profitably, which we were also kind of like, that's not our, our focus, you know, so let's leave that to the large agencies that are good at that side of it. And, uh, you know, had decided to start, um, you know, after selling that uh, new agency called the uh, DCX, um, yeah originally the name was a joke for the it was the Doug Cameron experience got the last assignment from my last agency <laughs> like hey you guys get to name it I'm not going to get in the way of the name and then they came up with that name and I'm like oh my god that's an awful name <laughs> but I promised that I would do it and then we had a couple of clients and they were like I'm not writing checks to anything other than the Doug Cameron experience and so eventually we abbreviated it DCX and now most people have forgotten what it is which is good well
0: yeah not I'm now well
1: yeah <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but it, it just started kind of growing organically um, out of this kind of culture hacking approach. I think that we were just, uh, you know, clients were like, okay, this is something very, you know, interesting and falls a little bit out of the remit of, you know, quite often clients will have, here's a, you know, an agency structure, you know, like our agency does this. And um, then, you know, we can kind of get in through like, look, here's something else that's very interesting and we can work with your agency, you know, if you'd like as well too. And how you know, how, how do we do that? So, so yeah. that was a, uh, you know. Launched that and then started working with, um, you know, had a bit of success with uh, a few tech brands um, that um, pretty pretty early on, and then that yeah, that's kind of since taken off and ended up with a bunch of more Fortune 500 type uh, type clients. So,
0: How many years is uh, DCX in in existence? How many years? About six six, six now. Yeah, um, yeah,
1: and it's actually our very first campaign. Um, at the time, we just wanted to kind of show, like, look, if you don't have a budget, this still works. Um, <laughs> And we launched, I think within about a week of our launch, our local deli was going out of business. Um, and we were, how, what can we do to help them? Yeah. Um, and the first had organized a protest to kind of, uh, you know, like, hey, let's demonstrate the fact that, you know, delis are being priced out. And no one really cared, you know, as the, uh, I think one of the neighbors had tried taking it to the New York Times. Um, her wife worked there. Um, and the uh, you know, editor had said, no one cares about gentrification. It's been done to death. We just can't do this. Um, and I guess we kind of took that as a challenge, like, well, how do we make people care about (laughs) gentrification decided like people could care about hipster gentrification, (laughs) you know, it's a huge tension that people are feeling across the city, but then the kind of hipster version became kind of a funny thing that, you know, if you think globally about Brooklyn, here are all these hipsters and there's a bit of a kind of interesting contradiction where, you know, these hipsters are, you know, like, look, we're trying to be kind of cool within this kind of local culture, but you're paying like $19 for a sandwich or, you know, $21 for a cocktail over here. And, and uh, there, there was kind of like, okay, that could be interesting to people. And so, you know, ended up kind of uh, complaining about the, you know, when the landlord had brought up the rent by two and a half times, had decided to um, bring up all the product prices by two and a half times to pass the savings along to the consumers. Yeah. But then kind of added on this whole element of like, well, we're going to give everything kind of artisanal hipster name. So it was a you know artisanal roach bombs was you know like the first one. when we were like seasonally curated extension cords, and then you know just kind of drew up a list of left column artisanal words. So it would be you know the farm to table, you know like Himalayan tuna, like things that didn't even make sense. But once you started putting them together, <laughs> uh, you know, I posted them in the window, you know, marked up the prices. It was like foaming goose fat beard paste for a, for a, a Gillette shaving cream. So all these regular kind of corner deli, you know, you'd have the corner shops over there um, items and gave them all these ridiculous names uh, really made it feel like it was coming from the deli. And then suddenly that took off, you know, locally then took off nationally. It happened to be on, you know, the the second most watched event of the year, the kind of like the basketball final uh, that this was happening at the same time. And suddenly they latched onto it. They're like a deli in Brooklyn is doing this. And and so, you know, NPR, um, the CBS, NBC, Buzzfeed, you know, all the the different uh, um, press, uh, you know, took it off and we called it the artisanal um, landlord price hike sale. And so, kind of had, you know, did it as a series of things like that. That we started like, look, we love that actually Ben and Jerry's had very early on when they had chosen us as a client had said, look, we try to, you know, part of our policy whenever we have suppliers um, is on ice cream, you know, is to try to get them to incorporate a social mission to what they do. So say you supply chocolate to them, it's like, okay. what's your social mission? And that was part of how they could have more impact on And so we, you know, decided to take that seriously and launching DCX and we're just like, look, let's put 20% of our profits toward helping people who we think are being bullied in the culture. (laughs) And so a lot of that is, let's call it economic bullying. So here's a local deli that's being kind of, you know, getting priced out, um, we were also kind of looking, it was during the Trump election, and probably our, the one that got the most kind of media coverage was this little Trump hut that we had done <laughs> over here where we were just looking at, the, you know, he was kind of making fun of Mexican folks at the, the time. Um, and there was also kind of this, I was just like, look, we need to reframe this as an inequality kind of issue because he was somehow being presented as a popul- populist. Um, and so we were like, you know, is there a little hut that we can put outside of the Trump tower? We called it like it was a luxury hair hut in his yeah. shape of his head. And then, we got this uh, great Mexican artist to um, you know use kind of fine Oaxacan imported um, straw to be able to weave it and just have this bizarre thing. I guess that's another lesson where if you don't explain it if it's not a hundred percent understood, then you know and this is going to sound super pretentious and I'm gonna read up that I remember in, in college a professor saying, that great art thrives on ambiguity. <laughs> and so okay. if you see a film, you're not quite sure what it means, but you're trying to kind of understand it, or you see an art piece, you're not entirely sure. There's kind of an interpretive side to it. A few of these, like the, the ones that have gotten the most press, so I think are big fear that, okay, is anyone gonna understand this price hike sale? Is anyone gonna understand what this Trump hair hat is? That really was a little confusing, we'd admit. Um, but suddenly, once people—that uh, doesn't matter when it, <laughs> when it comes to getting press. And then the journalists will interpret it for you, okay. and then that you know, gives them a story to tell and gives them—it almost helps with the earned media. So that was another. Uh, another so the ambiguity
0: has the ambiguity has a place.
1: Yeah, that's exactly yeah. the, um, and that's it's very very difficult in the context of you know if you're you know, if you're a pain client <laughs> yes. to be able to explain to them because it's like hey we're you know <laughs> getting this message across it needs to be hundred percent clear it needs to. But when you are fully reliant on earned media, um, if you say something that the uh, client is wanting to say, it becomes very uh, you know that like people don't like reporting on that if it becomes kind of too too obvious yeah um, and uh, you know again, there's a lot of freedom to do when you come into here's what the client is not you know for what we were talking about before that but the the you know, to us, it's kind of when we do these. You know, when we're paying for it, when we're like our own client, <laughs> like in the, with the deli, or you know, when we you do take these the risk,
0: almost or you,
1: yeah, yeah, and and to us, that's kind of the one of the easiest ways to. If it's a little baffling, then you know people start wondering what it is. They start talking about it. They start you know the confusion almost really helps it break through. That was actually the what I think the first thing that we did that really went viral and got onto. Good Morning America, all the news outlets was we put up a billboard. Uh, it was, we were, we were court TV, but the, um, it, it was the, uh, the, they had to do this show called Park OPI that no one had heard of. Um, but we put up a, that was all about kind of like, here's a private investigator uh, busting people for adultery. So we created a billboard that appeared to be written by a citizen, this woman, Emily, <laughs> that was, you know, just put it out there kind of, you know, saying, you know, I cut it all on tape, you know, like Steven, you cheating, you know, like slime ball, you know, poorly endowed, you know, et cetera. And just like put it out on Sunset Boulevard to, you know, wait for people like, what is that? You know, it's assumed that it's a real, that, you know, kind of created all this of ambiguous, what it was that, you know, took off suddenly everywhere. You know, this is on the, you know, all the talk shows over here, you know, all the news shows, television coverage, like what is this that um, and then we got to come in about a week later and, okay, it's for Park, Park OPI. It <laughs> got a whole yeah. second wave of, you know, of PR when that happened, but it was the, uh, you know, as an example, you kind of seed something out there and if it's provocative enough, you get everyone talking and the media wants to report on it, figure it out, it becomes an interesting story um, as opposed to, you know, if we'd said like Park OPI, a great show that's about, yeah. <laughs> you know, 8pm
0: central. It's like, you know, often you'd hear, you know, responses to to work is like oh well you know the comprehension on that like you know so that's almost like the bravery to to lose that a little bit to allow something kind of have that ambiguity because that you know then it has the chance but that's the bravery part yeah. i guess so you need to in many ways be working with clients that that are brave i guess
1: yeah i would say that uh, yeah but certainly when that sort of uh, <laughs> communication is an understatement now I do feel like they've got a large enough media budget, then you don't need to kind of yeah. take that type of, let's call it comprehension risk, but that's, you know, the fewer and fewer, you know, like we don't meet a lot of clients that, you know, with more than, you know, like quite off, like the typical budget we're dealing with is maybe $2 million or something yeah. like that. Um, that, you know, like two point, what would that be in euros, 1.6 or, you know, 1.7 or something like that. Uh, I, I don't know the interchange at all, yeah. but the, uh, it, it, um, you know, our point is always that, like, look the once the journalist tells it, and if you've actually you know listened to it on the news, then it's going to be made really clear because suddenly you've got you know like a lot of the stories we've gotten um, you know in these are media you know they they go on for about four minutes you know they've sent out a you know someone to cover it they explain everything that's going on they explain the issue they start you know heroizing you know your store or whatever you're behind can so come out to the deli you know you get the call to action and, and all of that uh, that they connect the dots for you and you know, if you've already connected the dots, there's, they can't do that. You know, there's it's just, they'd be like, why are they telling me exactly what, you know, these people have already said. Um, and so that, you know, you want to give them something. And if you were measuring comprehension of those articles, it'd be incredibly high, you know, like yeah. much yeah, higher yeah. than a 30 second ad. So it's, it's a bit just kind of like the, you know, you know, what we were talking about earlier, but the hand holding people through like, like, this yeah. is different from what you've done before. It's not going to fit that comprehension model exactly, but it'll fit this separate comprehension model. And that's, again, I think what agencies are pretty good at in general, That because people are always like, hey, look, you can just kind of, you know, we can do this in-house, bring in freelancers to do this, but you you need the whole team to, (laughs) you know, be able to, you know, someone who can, you know, like look at testing scores and understand, you know, what's going on there and speak to the testing folks in their own language and kind of explain, here's a bespoke way that we're going to do this. Um, If you're a creative person, you probably haven't been trained in that, you know, won't be able to say that or, you know, and then the account person needs to kind of do the like, look, let's make sure we're having this conversation, because I'm hearing this right here that that's the one thing about the agency that you've got everyone in place to be able to, you know, a whole team there (laughs) to be able to try to get something great um, across that I I think there's sometimes there's a bit of thinking that like, okay, let's just get the creatives have them work on it. And that's all you, you you need to do. But then you kind of preclude a lot of these things because just the no one's uh, you know you just would never get to the same uh, same place if you didn't have the whole team you know working on it and and I don't think people often don't understand I think how just how important the account um, teams are how oh, important yes.
0: the
1: you know, strategy research you know like all the yeah. you know the, the different folks are
0: obviously fascinating and you you call to the book and cultural strategy along the way and we'll talk about that in a sec but how do you go about then or you know trying to unpack that cultural tension. Cause I, I, find that fascinating. We, I had the chance to do some work with you. We were talking about it like maybe six, five, six years ago, must be five or six years ago. And the things we talked about then are only really coming to the fore now. Like, so topics like diversity, inclusion and belonging, you know, reading really now are so topical, but, but when we worked with you five years ago, you were, you were kind of talking to us about these topics that, you know, we should, be addressing, And so how do you, I guess, in many ways, get so deep and nearly get ahead of kind of the, I guess, like what will become mainstream news in five years time and, you know.
1: Yeah, well, a lot of, you know, the, what was probably the most influential <laughs> moment in my, you know, my career, let's say, other than, you know, like a lot of these, you know, talking about Cliff Clifford and Fox Sports and all of that was working with a gentleman by the name of Doug Holt. Um, who it was actually very early in my career, um, when I was in account planning, um, you know, I'd been hired as an intern at Cliff Freeman and, and, you know, was given a bit of a remit to find like, what are some interesting new approaches that, you know, out there, um, and came across him, um, where, you know, he was, I remember speaking to someone at Harvard who, (laughs) uh, university who had said like, look, that we were working and this is for Fox sports. Um, and, you know, like, look, the, I know this guy who, you know, he was doing his dissertation sitting in, uh, you know, Wrigley Field interviewing sports fans there. He might be perfect for this. Uh, you know, what are, what are, you talk to him? Um, and then, you know, he's a university, uh, you know, had become a professor, I guess, uh, uh, you know, since then, of, of course. But he, um, you know, started working with him. And, yeah, his name was Doug Holt. And... Um, at some point, you know, so I was working with him on, you know, Spot Sports Project, working with him on another one. And then he shot me a paper. It was right before he wrote his first Harvard Business Review article. Um, and the, it was, you know, really kind of how do brands become icons? <laughs> and, you know, it was the topic of the paper. And eventually, he turned that into a book right afterwards. And, you know, just really, you know, to me, I had studied um, a lot of kind of similar themes in college, but never had heard it applied to branding. Okay. Um, and suddenly I'm just like, wait a second, this explains much better <laughs> the <laughs> dynamics of brands. How does this, uh, you know, work, how to, uh, you know, how to, you know, how do brands become iconic? And I guess it just kind of fit everything that, you know, all the ways that I had been manipulated myself, um, it kind of fit that. So, you know, he would kind of look at like subcultures, you know, at the, yeah. at the time that would be emerging and how that might drive, you know, aligning with one of them might help, you know, align, uh, consumption preferences. You know, I had been a member, this is somewhat embarrassing, but of the mod subculture back in, uh, in high school um, and, uh, you know, would buy my Fred Perry shirts. My Doc Martens had to import them at the time because I didn't sell them. You know, the Air <laughs> Force Park, like almost everything that I would buy, um, you know, you know, it's Beeman's gum that feels more mod than other ones. You know, it was really kind of came out of that uh, cultural <laughs> alliance, let's say, and how I was trying to kind of forge my own identity. And Doug was really the first person to start talking about that, you know, like these brands as like, they're, it's about identity value, um, you know, and he, he kind of came from a tradition that, you know, i began to learn was kind of the, you know, the, in, in a lot of, you know, called consumer cultural theory um, um, that, you know, in, in academics where they were bringing um, a lot of these, you know, let's call it critical theory, cultural studies um, over yeah. into study of brands. And so to me, I remember reading that article was on Mountain Dew and I was just like, oh shit, <laughs> everything I've learned in strategy is basically wrong. This is right. I need to start again. Um, and, you know, started working with him pretty closely. And, uh, you know, later, you know, when we launched uh, Amalgamated, I think within six months, you know, he came on as a, a partner um, of, of that. And we got to start trying a lot of these things out together. So, you know, yeah. Um, and he'd always, uh, you know, done strategy consulting, but this was kind of where we could really kind of get all the nuances down and try to break, you know, bring it into the, the, the culture. So, so that was kind of the, the you know, the where a lot of the thinking came from. Eventually, he, uh, you know, invited me to co-author um, a, a new book that, you know, the that the, the he wanted to do, which is the uh, Cultural Strategy. Um, and that was just, okay, look, let's take, you know, all this kind of how brands become iconic and, uh, you know, how do we bring this to life through certain types of, you know, case studies and create a, you know, a framework for that. Um, but you know, it was kind of between that and a lot of the experimentation we were doing and looking at Ben and Jerry's, as I was saying, we did want to create a whole, you know, like they were an iconic brand, but like how did they become yeah. an iconic, you know, it was always kind of these brands speaking to cultural culture. And so a lot of that, you know, we used to talk about that as, um, you know, cultural leadership for brands <laughs> and yeah. when a brand becomes a cultural leader, you know, everything else follows it's, you know, so Starbucks, they, you know, take the artisanal movement to the mainstream. They're the first yeah. to start bringing all cappuccinos and, you know, kind of like locally sourced espressos and. Well, not locally sourced actually at all, but let's say, you know, Ethiopian, you know, like you're getting a bit more into kind of the details through that, but everything else follows or Apple claims cultural leadership in, you know, like computers and, you know, it's kind of create a rebel ideology. And then everything else kind of follows through that, you know, where it's, you know, the buzz, the, you know, ability to charge a premium, the press coverage, the, you know, Ben and Jerry's was cultural leader in ice cream, you know, and, and so we always kind of had that, like, look, let's look at, you know, advancing and emerging ideology, and also speak to an emerging cultural tension. Yeah. So if you think about rainforest crunch, you know, this kind of environmental tension started coming about around rainforest. It's like, we'll become the first brand to really address that and kind of advance an innovative ideology that um, <laughs> becomes a, you know, so that was the, it was actually one of their suppliers who uh, Ben had met at a party. Uh, this is well before we worked on it, but, and had figured out how to he had this thesis that he's like, look, I can, take uh, you know nuts from the rainforest and uh, you know we can invest in you know that use that as an alternate way of making money rather than slashing and burning and so they're like we'll create a flavor called rainforest crunch here we you know and so you know you'd always be looking at these emerging tensions as they're occurring and you want to kind of get a little bit ahead of them but you also want to look at the bigger cultural picture to understand you know like quite often there's a big macro shift let's say so in those days it was really kind of the rise of you know the creative class, let's say you know so you know started with the you know here's these educated you know like or bourgeois bohemians you might call them, yeah. but you know like kind of uh, hippies who had uh, you know baby boomers had all gone to college who now were kind of moving into lawyer, doctor, you know physicians, everyone had these very progressive hippie ideals, but they were becoming kind of they've also got money, you know yes yeah. so, that was, so and we kind of see this as there's the macro shift that's going on. Okay. So it's going to be very safe. Like, we're just going to target that group, you know, that's 20% of the population, but we don't need anyone else, you know, like the, if we get them, then that's enough to become a massive brand. And so, you know, same thing with Apple computer, I think in the early days, when you get for the creative, you know, <laughs> professional ones, we don't need anyone else. And, you know, let IBM, you know, sure, they could, you know, they can do whatever they want. They can have so everyone else. <laughs> macro shift and you kind of know you're right within that, but you want to kind of look at these emerging tensions that are happening within that, you know, the kind of like that macro level thing. So it's kind of rainforest becomes kind of attention bank, you kind of like get a, you know, but you're always looking for the emerging ones. And so that's how you kind of be confident that here's something that's just emerging amongst kind of a few people uh, right there, but it's within this large, you know, larger context, you could hit that. And so I think, you know, when when we were (laughs) working together, we were really looking at, you know, job uh, you know the, the, well and, and you know indeed yeah <laughs> and, and then uh, yeah, the the you know the, as a as job site how do you uh, you know the, plug that into the the, the same model in, in a really really interesting way um and had looked at okay look nike had always been about overcoming these barriers in sport so and they would be at their best when it'd be like overcoming race barriers overcoming age yeah. barriers overcoming gender barriers you know over you know the, like the and various forms of discrimination um and, you know, physical disability. And I think, you know, when we were, you know, working together, <laughs> suddenly started realizing, wait a second, no one's done that within jobs. And that's yeah. perhaps the most relevant space in which to do that. And so, again, because you want to be a cultural leader, what are the emerging tension points that are occurring? And I think, yeah, a lot of the stuff that's kind of become, you know, diversity and inclusion, um, you know, since kind of ar- arisen to become one of the the more, you know, kind of the yeah. most important thing, you What's know, defining that. You know,
0: yeah. We, that, that
1: yeah that uh, you know and you, you can kind of see like at the time I think it was the same bourgeois Bohemian segment. Here's these kind of uh, the you know the, the people who are in charge of corporations often come from that same let's uneducated segment. That's you know they they want to be able to help um, in in various ways. There you know great real frustrations felt by people who are facing barriers in the market. Uh, you know as we as we learned just for the empathetic yeah. side. So you know let's bring it in here and and yeah I think when you've got that framework of like how do we lead culture. And again, you know, we don't want to, you know, we're, we understand the, the basic dynamics enough to know that this will appeal, you know, a, a across them. Um, but let's, you know, let's look for emerging tension points w- within that.
0: Where do you um, look for the emerging tension points? I guess it depends on what you're looking at, but like, where do you go to look at them? And then how do you know, or how do you make bets on which ones you think are going to be kind of the larger emerging tension points? I find that fascinating.
1: To us, it's always a, like a triangulation process. And actually I should say quadrangulation process probably. Um, But first of all, it's speaking to consumers and, you know, that doesn't have to be any really formal. I mean, it's probably best done if it's a formal research project, but just understanding the tensions from their perspective um, and, you know, starting to talk to enough people to understand, you know, what's a little emerging tension point, but then taking a step back and looking at the whole big picture culturally. So kind of always pivoting between the two where you're like, look, here's what I'm hearing. Here's what I see going on in the cultural discourse <laughs> right now. Um, Is it like the and, news
0: or the like just kind of general discourse. Yeah, yeah,
1: kind of like we'll often look at the mass media discourse. And then once you kind of understand the cultural, you know, space we're going to be in, what you know, what are the there might be some subcultural things going on there that are interesting. So say it's a movement you know that's pushing toward diversity and inclusion. You yeah. want to look at what's at the forefront of that, and that's interesting. And then at the same time as the mass cultural discourse, so it's almost like two different um, discourses is what, you know, the, what we'd kind of, uh, kind of look at. Again, I'll attribute that to, you know, to, to Doug, um, whole to, he was the first one, who, you know, we look kind of just like look at it as, you know, you're speaking to cultural, you know, to the cultural dialogue as much as you are, you know, targeting consumers. And so we always have that. And then what you start learning in the cultural discourse, you can start bringing back into the discussions with consumers to kind of understand how it's playing out for them. And so it's kind of always going back and forth between the two of them. And it's almost, you know, as much kind of craft as, as it is science, you know, let's say, yeah, yeah. and then also kind of moving, um, you know, the, 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 between, you know, the, you know, as I said, quadrangulate, um, the competitive difference. So it's the, you know, like, wait a second, you know, what are competitors doing? Cause we don't want to repeat yeah. that. Of course we want to really kind of stand out, you know, in, some, in a white space and then, also just, okay, let's look at the client and, you know, what, you know, is it about their product, their history, their values, their, you know, the, them as a, as a company that, okay, that will make sense that they can actually solve that tension because quite often, you know, say you were just interviewing, interview, you know, consumers looking for attention, the, you know, I don't know if Pepsi was doing that before. Um, uh, the, well, or, you know, I don't know that uh, the, the, I'll, I'll try to think of, it, of examples, but the, the, you know, sometimes it'll be like, you know, like uh, speaking to attention that the brand doesn't necessarily resolve <laughs> yes. um, very well themselves with any credibility, and that it becomes an issue. So you know you're yes. always kind of trying to get in between. I know the example
0: words. you mean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. No, uh, um, but but uh,
0: yeah, I think that
1: that's a uh, a uh, you know that, that's an important part because I think the you know with, with the rise of purpose, um, it's you know from my perspective, you know if you take um, you know, this whole cultural approach, you know, the Doug had started, you know, they really kind of built up through there. The purpose has almost become a kind of light version of that. And to us, it's not wrong. It's, you know, it's fine to, oh, yeah. you know, great to have a purpose, but the way that it comes to life for a lot of companies is just kind of joining the culture wars. Um, now that is sometimes right. You know, for Ben and Jerry's it's, uh, you know, it's great. We've put our brand right into that and that's what, you know, that we're not even going to try to go for anyone in the, in the middle. Yeah. And, and, you know, it kind of relates to how our ice cream is sourced and, you know, we, it's going to be really differentiating versus the, you know, Haagen-Dazs and all these other you know, competitors. But let's say for a lot of brands, that doesn't make sense. Um, and the, uh, you know, the, and again, I know that I don't want to diminish purpose because I think it's very important, you know, that a company have, you know, <laughs> here's what, you know, what it believes yeah. in, Ben & Jerry's, is a strong purpose, all these, you know, iconic brands do. Um, but it sometimes is kind of a light version of this where you're not looking at like, you know if, one brand has as its purpose joy and another one has happiness and another yes, one has exactly uh, you know, the, yeah yeah yeah
0: whereas it's, like i i think about a brand like you know have you tony's Chocolonely, which is like I the purpose tell me about that, so uh,
1: that yeah
0: so wonderful a great product for, like but anyway but they're around trying to reduce the number of basically kids working in cocoa plants and oh, so it's all okay. about yeah. you know ensuring that who they work with uh, you know they work with kind of vetted you know farmers and co-ops and groups and and it's all about that and they're you talked about price premium earlier on like they cost more you know they're and their chocolates actually uh, it's not normal squares because it's meant to represent the un um kind of dis, disproportionate you know value that goes to chocolate makers like the big ones versus the people who actually go and do the work you know uh getting the cocoa so like that's a brand that's like like created from a purpose and actually yeah. you know i actually think it'd be really fa- <laughs> it'd be fascinating for them to work with you because i was actually mm-hmm. listening to to the head of marketing i was like oh my god if those guys worked with dcx what they could do <laughs> like, it would just explode so uh you know anyone tony shakaloni listening get in touch with doug i think you do wonderful yeah, things yeah <laughs> i like that i like that plug
1: yes the the uh to me it's it's pretty interesting because the I, I actually just pulled up the, the brand um, just now. Um, but, you know, the way we, uh, you know, talked about it in cultural strategy is like innovative ideologies. And yes. the, that, the, uh, you know, like the, you know, like, you know, how do you, how does a brand innovate in an in, in ideological ways? And just looking at it, they feel like they've got a very innovative ideology. Now it's to me interesting because in some ways it feels a bit like Ben & Jerry's when, you know, Ben & Jerry's had, you know, similar kind of chunky fonts, you know, that they're using in the veterinary's title. And they were, you know, kind of had a strong, you know, or have a very strong social mission. Um, And actually, one of the very first assignments I worked on was trying to figure out slave free chocolate, you know, the yeah. And that was very difficult in those days. That you know, none of it was bad, and you know, the, I don't think we did a very good job at publicizing it because no one <laughs> knows about it. You know, later, and there was a bit of a fear at the time because there was only kind of enough for maybe one ship of chocolate to come over, and say chocolate can spoil easily if you lost that, and you know, like, all your plans are kind of out for the year. So it becomes there are a lot of issues around that. But to me, it kind of shows like, look, they've innovated by just focusing. <laughs> entirely on the free side of things. Yeah. And that becomes really, you know, whereas, you know, & Jerry's might be here's peace. Here's all, you know, all these different issues like that. And it becomes really innovative to build an entire brand around that. Yeah. Um, and so to me, that's it, another kind of nuance in this that, okay, in some ways they're playing in the same space as a lot of other chocolates and, and in other ways they're kind of bringing it in, but also, you know, just looking at it, it feels like they've got a very strong kind of, uh, you know, like, hey, let's put our, let's make, let's, let's have fun, you know, where it's not going to be a lecture, you know, like yes. this, uh, the, this brand where it's a, you know, paper that someone's writing, yeah. let's kind of start having fun with it, get really kind of creative, really, uh, you know, really push that forward. So it's a, it's kind of a, you know, and I, I love that it's a brand that Ben & Jerry's would probably ex- extraordinarily respect. And you yes. see how you like, might want to even you know partner with them and doing that as a blog to Ben & Jerry's. Yeah. Not <laughs> Hopefully it's not owned by one of their, their competitors. So. Um, but, but yeah, that the you know to me it's like the again it's kind of hitting you know its purpose, but also it would fit this whole like okay, here's a tension you know where you know that we're you know that's that's felt amongst you know especially amongst this kind of bourgeois bohemian group that's spending a lot of money, and you know at the same time doesn't you know that like you know it feels kind of partially you know responsible for you know just all these kind of social issues and global ones, you know that it's suddenly like wait a second here, uh, you know, this brand is, you know, is doing this, it kind of, it helps resolve that tension for them. You know, again, it, it sometimes sounds a little cynical, but to me, it's kind of the, that's how, that's the way, you know, they drive, um, uh, you know, markets forward. it. And suddenly, yeah. but I think the point being that, like once I start buying, um, you know, a brand for ideological reasons, it's very hard for me to switch, you know, and it's very easy for me to talk about it and tell others about it. And if you lower the price or, you know, raise the price by 20%, I'm going to stick with it because, yeah. I, you know, I'm committed to it from, a, from that level. And so, you yeah. know, quite often these brands with purpose also have these, you know, cultural um, strategies, let's say, as well, too. You know, we see kind of cultural purpose almost by definition is like, yeah. here's what we are about. It's you know it's almost a lot of the brands want to kind of think about that at the exclusion of you know competitive strategy at the exclusion of you know what is your uh, you know the, the the you know the, the what do consumers want um, but you know for us it's kind of the what we're always looking at is how do these things all match up you know it's kind of a triangulating back and forth and so. Yeah the uh you know and this one this heroizes the chocolate really well suddenly i'm like oh my god it must be much better quality chocolate if it you know <laughs> yeah, yeah by, exactly. by uh you yeah. know in, in the right way you know etc so it is such so yeah, but that's a perfect example where you just look at the one percent of brands that really kind of cut through and take off and that you know they've got these very interesting kind of ideologies that they're yeah. um, advancing and they're generally kind of resolving uh, you know attention and and I'll also say it's the brands that tend to try to dramatize the tension and then resolve them. That's how you really get um, Get a lot of, you know, and I'll say that a lot of our own kind of most famous things have been that.
0: (laughs) Dramatization, Doug, uh, because humor was something kind of I was picking up, like some of the examples you had, humor was there. Is humor important in the dramatization or does it matter?
1: I think it, you know, to me, there are a lot of different ways of doing it. You know, some can be like deadly serious and suddenly it provokes an, really intense yeah. emotions it Can be humorous. So I'll, I'll say that, you know, the campaign over here that we're most famous for probably <laughs> is our Pay Less Shoes prank. I think, oh, it, yes. uh, you know, it, like when we were looking at all the earned media and the news, at least our news shows, uh, like we never, you know, had much time to kind of get much advertising press for it or, you know, I don't know if whether we'd have gotten it anyway, but it really took off on all the, you know, CBS, NBC, all the. You know, explain Payless
0: sh- for pay less shoes for people who haven't seen it or, or know that one. Just briefly yeah, explain so, that one. That's brilliant.
1: So, so that's that's a pretty good story <laughs> too. So um, it actually came through um, a, a friend of mine who had worked at a, a private equity company um, at the time. Uh, the you know without going into details, they kind of specialized in um, bankruptcies and <laughs> things like that. And we probably should have seen a you know a bit of that that coming beforehand, but the the head decided to, Hey, look, we, we need a holiday campaign. So, and they own Payless shoes. Um, Payless is a really large kind of, you know, shoe <laughs> retailer. Um, they, you know, started in the you know seventies kind of grew, you know, then these were really inexpensive shoes. It'd yeah. be the sort of place that your mom would want to shop at. You'd be really embarrassed to get to get shoes from there. And I remember my mom was like, Payless, it was great. You know, you should, you know, let's just get shoes there. And I'm like, oh God, I can't go to a well, place called When Payless. I was a
0: backpacker in the States, I bought my shoes and Payless because I couldn't
1: them anywhere else. So yeah, go. Yeah, they, they, exactly, exactly. So we actually started interviewing a lot of Payless customers just to kind of put it in this whole, like let's understand the tensions they're feeling. And that attitude of the had uh, was exactly what people are like, look, it's embarrassing. Um, you know, no one who is kind of into fashions and, you know, things like that would ever do it, but actually the shoes are really good. You know, it's like you can get airwalks, even these brand names and things like that. It's like the, that's a, uh, the, and you have this very kind of pragmatist ideology. It's almost like, look, I, I don't, you know, I don't want to be sucked into pain over pain. You know, what I like is the, you know, it's just 10 bucks is perfect for me. You know, like, Twenty bucks, and that way I'm not getting suckered into paying like three hundred dollars for the exact same item of shoes that I'm going to get elsewhere. So that started coming through, and so we're just like, look, already that's an interesting tension to play off of. So you know exactly your embarrassment over (laughs) doing that. uh, That's that's part of it, but then we start looking at what are the emerging tension points that come through that, Um, and and it's also once we're clear, like this is you know if you shop elsewhere, that you might be very fashionista oriented and kind of aspiring to be a fashion elite. Um, the uh, you know and a lot of the budget ones even do that. It's like look here's how uh, you know like you can get all the glamour of you know it's expensive you know great fashion world, but you know at the low low price. Payless customers were just not that like you're almost kind of by virtue of you're going to a store called Payless, <laughs> that's going to screen out at all those consumers is going to bring in all the kind of pragmatists. And so saw very quickly that okay this is going to be a strong platform for them. Looked at their history, we saw that for 20 years they had done this really kind of pragmatist style advertising and did really well. And then sometime around 2000, the moment they started doing poorly was when they abandoned that and started to do this kind of elitist fashionista type advertising, you know, like for yeah. everyone who kind of Target over here and Old Navy, these two, uh, you know, kind of like, hey, we've got this kind of cool fashionista thing and we're bringing it to Main Street for nothing, you know. <laughs> and you look at that, it was the moment in which the, you know, their downward trajectory began and right. just kept going and going. So we were like, look, how do we go back to those days of here, you know, was this pragmatist brand that's almost making fun of overpaying and having a lot of fun with that. Um, but let's do it in a modern kind of context. And so that was, again, the interview started showing us at the time. And these are, this is, you know, it's kind of creative research. It's like just doing it the way that yeah. like, look, if you're writing a movie or a you know TV show, you want to kind of get in there and kind of understand really quickly all the things that are, that are going on, um, started, you know, I remember, um, the, the, our, you know, strategist Laurent um, at the time that was kind of came running in. He's like, listen to this, you know, like here's someone complaining about influencers and going on a rant for 20 minutes. (laughs) And we were like, Oh shit, this is, you know, let's look at kind of Hollywood, look at influencers, look at, you know, what are these modern tension points that no one's made fun of yet. And no one's really spoken to yet. And we could become the first to do it, you know, like we know Payless can always speak to this kind of what we're calling superficiality overdose, (laughs) but no one's speaking to the influencer part of that. And because no one has, we can do that in a way that is going to kind of blow up. So because the the media, you know, will want to report on it. So um, what we had ended up doing was, um, and I guess I should also say that the client was really proud of their product um, when they wanted to say, like, we do have really high quality shoes. We're just not getting credit for it. And so it all started coming together when we were like, "Look, let's you know create a fake store, call it Pelesi, give it the fashionista a- right. <laughs> get a name, um, change it you know from Pelos to that, you know, go, throw a party and try to convince influencers into just ridiculously overpaying for it, and then kind of uh, you know greatly embarrass them by telling them that their shoes are from Palus." <laughs> And the, you know, the, this kind of prank had been done before, but we wanted to kind of inject an element of class war into it, I guess, which hadn't been done. And that was kind of the macro tension. If you're paying, you know, you, you just kind of feel like I don't have a lot of money for shoes and there are all these elites spending all this. And so everything, we're just how we recruit, where we put the store, where we, and then also they didn't have the kind of like you know, there's quite often like, okay, Folgers coffee, you know, like we've tricked people, I think they did it in the 60s, you know, into overpaying for it and by serving it in Central Park or Chevy did it where, you know, we've tricked people into, you know, it's, it looks like a luxury one, but it's a really a Chevy. Yeah, yeah. You're like, okay, that's been done before, but we have to take it to the extreme, you know, and kind of inject an element of like, this is kind of a yeah some form of class war and that we were feeling at the time in america especially was kind of really emerging and again we didn't you know we're, we're not a serious political player or anything like that but yeah yeah you know and on both sides of the political spectrum it, it is kind of really strong kind of you know like bernie sanders <laughs> and it's, you know the you know kind of the same like it was kind of going across uh, america at the time and so wanted to dramatize it where we're like, here's Beverly Hills and let's get kind of these influencers who really kind of conjure that. And let's design the store in a way that conjures that. Let's have a, you know, really elite party in a way that brings that up. And then, you know, like, Hey, you know, and get them to pay. We got them to pay the, at the most, it was like $650 for a pair of (laughs) these $100 shoes. Um, And then, you know, I I remember one of them, we were, you know, like, what if we tell you this is, you know, from Payless? And he's just like, "Uh, no way. (laughs) (laughs) Just this whole like heart sinking and, but it was ultimately because they were influencers and kind of, like, kind of really enjoyed the, you know, we're going to put them onto the news and onto the, yeah. everyone's just like, oh my God, I'm famous and I'm being seen on the, and so it, we kind of did it in a way that we weren't going to, um, uh, you know, humiliate anyone. And we actually yes. been checked before we did it, where <laughs> we were, you know, like one person who had signed away, like we got everyone to sign away their, uh, you know, the, the rights to, to to use it, but that, you know, he was a consultant, one of the best people as a, you know, he was a consultant in the shoe industry and he was just like, this will destroy my career. <laughs> they were like, we'll take it out. And it actually just started checking up with people like, Hey, I said, okay. we'll okay, this. We're okay. Like, Oh my God, that's great. Put it out there. So uh, there was brilliant. a bit of a um, part of it. Uh, it was lucky that we were in LA where, you know, they were kind of behind it. And then if you look at how the campaign took off, um, it was the, you know, the, like all these media companies were, you know, like, abc it was like 20 minutes you know here's behind or eight minutes you know good morning america you're behind the pay less prank you know yeah. what are these what are these people called fashion influencers and kind of went into that um you know colbert you know like abc cbs they you know a professor interviewed us you know some guy from wharton um <laughs> on the national news you know and then it started <laughs> up globally so my you know my parents side in canada and all these different news networks up there and, and stuff so it was For the uh, the uh, the, it was just kind of a funny, yeah, the pretty funny situations. I think it was one of the, the, uh, the, the three top uh, most covered campaigns in terms yeah. of the, the news. And I think in part, because it was this very kind of everyday kind of American, uh, you know, like yeah. just resonated at every level and also in part, because like if we, when you craft these tensions, dramatize these tensions properly, that's where humor really did help to, to your point. Yeah. But, you know, like in this case, it was like everyone agreed with that. Like, you know, like if you look at the, I don't know, Kaepernick, um, Nike ad campaign, people, you know, start burning shoes right. and yeah, the, yeah. know, the Gillette toxic masculinity, they alienated a huge segment of their, you know, like humor in this case was like, look, like where, you know, ESPN, like all these, everyone loved it. You know, the fashion right. folks, you know, loved it. The, you know, hip hop, uh, you know, streetwear, you know, like journals loved it. Like, so it's kind of the, that's where humor can often be a very powerful tool. Now, you know, also pointed heartstrings can be powerful, you know, as well too, yeah. but I'll, I'll say that, you know, to me, that's what a lot of purpose, you know, quote unquote purpose brands in this, um, is that once it becomes very serious, it either kind of falls into a fairly like cluttered space where here's, uh, you know, these kind of feels yes. a bit like elite telling you to do things. Um, or, you know, it just feels, you know, like kind of cliche that here, you know, like, look, I agree with the values, but I, you know, like 50 corporations have told me the same thing in the last, you know, last little while. And, you know, it's maybe the right thing to do, but it's just hard to notice that, you know, the, the humor can really make it cut through. Um, but it all just can make it feel a lot less like didactic, you know, where it's just like, here's a brand, you know, kind of preaching at you and telling you, telling you, you know, here's what your values should be. And so that, you know, that's kind of, to me, it's very useful, because it tends to kind of span political divides where, uh, you know, you could, you know, be apolitical and love this. Yes. You could be on either end of the spectrum and love it, you know, like the, uh, the, the, you know, so, so that's kind of where humor can often, uh, and that's why I think like in politics, the, you know, democratic party, for example, should, you know, they're just, you know, terrible at using humor unless it feels like kind of a condescending (laughs) humor. But to me, that's what they're, you know, yeah just why our country is in the the pickle that it's in right now. (laughs) uh, Lack of humor. Lack of uh, humor.
0: We need uh, it. We need it. We need it. Well, I think Um, Payless Payless is a great example of what we've talked about. And um, I think for anyone listening who wants to know more about what we talked about, not only check out, dcx but also to read the book cultural strategy i remember um reading it or getting given it to read um, and just being blown away i would never read anything quite like it and um, it certainly changed my perspective and then obviously we got to work with you so doug i could chat to you for another i would think six hours and we could we could talk so much more about this um but i just appreciate you taking the time i just Dropped you a note and said, would you do this? And I appreciate you saying yes so much.
1: Yeah. And thank you so much. And I, you know, the, yeah, I'm very, uh, very
0: excited to listen to all the other podcasts on your on your show as well. Well, I hope you enjoy that. I love how Doug thinks about the iterative brief and his advice on how to think about putting a brand to play in culture in a meaningful way through insights from speaking to customers. I've been lucky enough to see this play out firsthand and it is wonderful. This really is just a taster into the world Doug operates in and I'd highly recommend you go check out the book Cultural Strategy and his agency DCX. So that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to That's What I Call Marketing. If you did enjoy it, please do share and add comments with your feedback. From me, Connor Byrne, until the next
1: episode, take care.